0: Don't talk to
1: Everybody, welcome to the show. I just had to turn off one of the uh, lights in front of me because it was flickering, and I didn't want it to go off mid-show. It was making those noises too. It was like, it was like the buzzy noises. So yeah, I just went ahead and turned it off, and uh, it's a little bit dimmer in here, but not too dim to be honest. It looks, it's definitely passable and definitely professional enough. So anyway. lot of stuff to talk about today. Of course, there's a lot going on in the political world. Um, I'll be talking about a new poll that gave us the approval rating of Congress, and it shows how the whole fucking system is a giant house of cards, and it's all a paper tiger. And um, if you touch it with your pinky finger, the whole thing tumbles down. So we have that. We have Joe Biden committing to doing the most Joe Biden thing of all time. Um, namely Republicans in the administration. As we move along, oh, 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 that's right. I actually forgot the first segment I have to do is the, um, is the stimulus deal. So let me move that graphic up. I forgot that they made a stimulus deal last night, and they're voting on it today, so we're going to talk about that first. Um, and later on, we're going to laugh at One America News Network and Newsmax together. Nina Turner went on MSNBC and handled a smear question like a boss. So a lot of stuff to get to. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Let's go ahead and get started. Here we go. So a stimulus deal has officially been reached. Jeff Stein gives us the details of that deal. Taking a step back, some big picture things in the deal, $300 a week unemployment insurance, $600 Uh, per-person checks, that includes kids, by the way, um, $284 billion in PPP, $82 billion for schools, $27 billion for transit, $25 billion for rental money and eviction moratorium, $13 billion for hunger, vaccine distribution money, surprise billing legislation, $10 billion for child care. And then out of the deal is retroactive unemployment insurance, Unemployment insurance of $600 per week uh, backdated uh, to the spring and summer. Checks for immigrants and adult dependents. Direct aid for state and local governments. Democrats had asked for $1 trillion of that. That's out. Uh, the Republican liability shield. That's good. That means that, you know, you're not bending over and giving the corporations everything they want. And uh, hazard pay for essential workers is also out of the deal. Um Now, let me show you one more thing here. I think this is interesting. The White House has secured tax breaks for corporate meal expenses, a.k.a. the three-martini deduction, in draft of emergency economic relief package per officials. Dems agreed agreed to it in exchange for larger earned income and child tax credit, aid says. And then there's also this deduction called the double-dip deduction, and that's – Corporations can claim $1 million in PPP reimbursements to apply that money as a deduction on their tax returns. So reducing taxable income by $1 million. So if you're a big corporation, you took a PPP loan of, let's say 20 million, you can then deduct 20 million on your taxes. That one's also kind of BS. So the three martini deduction and the double dip deduction, those are are the worst parts of this legislation Thank God there's no liability shield in there because that was honestly a non-starter. I think you would have to instantly vote against it if there was a liability shield in there or it would be very difficult to sweeten up the deal enough in other ways to make it passable with the liability shield. Um, But there you have it. I mean, it was looking there for a while, like the Manchin-Romney deal or Manchin-McConnell deal, it was looking there for a while like they were going to pass Legislation that had no stimulus checks in it, a stimulus deal with no stimulus checks, which would have been an abysmal disaster. Again, if I was in the Senate, I would have instantly voted against that, no doubt about it, stimulus deal without stimulus checks. Are you kidding me? Extreme pain and hurt that's out there in the country right now. So here's the interesting thing, and I really do think this is tough, man, I do. I asked you guys, I polled you guys. Um, Who's in favor of this deal? I I put the details of the deal, plagiarized, of course, from the great Jeff Stein's tweet, because Jeff Stein is the man, and he does such a wonderful job as a journalist following this stuff and telling everybody what's going on. So I plagiarized his tweet, threw it up there in a poll, and said, you know, how would you guys vote? Would you vote yes or would you vote no? The results are amazing. So there were 18,767 votes. That's a lot of votes, and I only did like a three-hour poll. And based on the things that are in the deal, the percentage of people who said they'd vote yes, 50.9%, and the vote no's are 49.1%. It's almost a dead tie. Vote yes ever so slightly edges out vote no. It is incredible. Now, here's why I think this is a really, really difficult issue. Because... We're now at that place, okay, where this is all you're going to get. That's it. It's done. It's over. There are no more, like, procedural jujitsu maneuvers that you can try to force something else in there. Um, There is no going back to the drawing board. Uh, This is it. Now, I agree with what Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley did. In fact, I would go further. They uh, tried to do legislation of $1,200, a one-time $1,200 check, so they wanted – Double the amount for stimulus. Um, even their proposal was a little weak because it wasn't recurring. It was one time payment, just like the former um, stimulus package. So, but that got blocked. Ron Johnson blocked that. Any senator could block it. Ron Johnson blocked it. Very like Ayn Randy type Republican. So this is what we got. Like, this is the deal, it is what it is. And it's either going to be being as realistic as possible. It's either going to be this or nothing. So that's why this is difficult, because it's obviously bare bones, terrible, you know. Uh, I, would, I would definitely say it's not as bad as the CARES Act, in my opinion, because the CARES Act was just too much loaded up to the brim with giveaways to corporations. I think it was Naomi Klein's shock doctrine with uh, the CARES Act, how... You basically gave the Fed the green light to totally socialize the stock market, $5 trillion worth of spending. You gave Steve Mnuchin um, leeway to determine where a lot of this money goes. Uh, It was basically a giant corporate bailout. And then, like, for example, they gave a lot of money to Boeing, billions of dollars, and then Boeing turned around and fired tens of thousands of people anyway. So I think the CARES Act was more clearly bad. This isn't as bad because the, the, the corporate hack provisions, the corrupt provisions, are not nearly as prominent as they were in the CARES Act. And at least in terms of the stuff that made it in the deal that Jeff Stein laid out here for us, a lot of this stuff is just good. So remember, we were talking about how Pelosi should have taken the uh, $1.8 trillion deal before the election. And Ro Khanna was the only Democrat who stood up and said, You need to take this deal. You're crazy. That deal was way better than this deal. But this deal, like I said, $300 a week in unemployment insurance, $600. Checks per person, including kids, $284 billion in PPP, $82 billion for schools, $27 billion for transit, $25 billion for rental and eviction moratorium, which is necessary, $13 billion for hunger. Then you have vaccine distribution money, surprise billing legislation, $10 billion for childcare. So even though this is like weak, bare bones, bottom of the barrel stuff, you're kidding yourself if you think like a lot of this stuff isn't completely and utterly and devastatingly necessary at this moment in time, where... If it's this or nothing, and we go the nothing path, oh, hello, New Great Depression. I think we're already in the New Great Depression, but this would exacerbate it, and you would be adding to the poverty, the pain, the degradation if you don't take the deal. So ultimately, how do I view this fight? Honestly, I view this fight a lot like Obamacare. What I mean by that is, the Democrats botched it from second number one with how they negotiated, how much they were willing to give away, how terrible they are. They kept, you know, they went from $3 trillion to $2 trillion to, like, $900 billion and it was just down, down, down. Like, they are the worst negotiators on the planet. But at the end of the day, like, if I was in Congress or I was in the Senate and the Democrats had already botched everything 15 ways to Sunday when it comes to the negotiation for health care... And the very final deal on the table was what it was, Obamacare. On the day, would I have voted for it? Yeah, I would have done what Bernie Sanders did, and I would have voted for it. Even though nobody questions whether or not Bernie Sanders is in favor of Medicare for all or not. Of course he is. It's most obvious thing in the world. He talks about it relentlessly. But when, when the whole process is done, and they botched it from second number one, but this is where you are now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because it is true that even though that was a Republican reform, It was Mitt Romney's idea, it was Chuck Grassley's idea, it was a Heritage Foundation idea. Our healthcare system was so bad that, of course, that made it better. Of course, that improved it. That only improved it 10%, how much it needed to be improved. But at the time, what are you going to do? You have no outs. They checkmated you. And so would you take the tiniest incremental improvement over nothing? Of course you would. Of course. So I would have voted for Obamacare if I was a senator on the day, and they were like, listen, it's literally this or nothing— Yeah, of course I take it, of course, and I feel very similar to this. So in other words, I lean ever so slightly in the direction of the majority of you guys. I'm with the 50.9%, and then I'm leaning in favor of voting for it, Um, because literally it's this or nothing. And it's like there are people out there who are like, "Fuck, give me 37 cents and a pop tart, give me anything. I'm dying over here. I'm starving. This is horrendous." So really, the problem is with leadership. The the problem is with Democrats giving away the farm from the very beginning and having no idea what they're doing. And by the way, how correct not to brag, even though that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I I was proven exactly right when I was screaming to take the deal, to take the previous deal, the $1.8 trillion deal. And I really think that the reason Pelosi didn't take it is because she was afraid that that would give people the economic benefits, that they needed before the election. And then it could have swung the election to Trump. I really think that was her concern. So she was like, I'll let people suffer to try to guarantee that Biden wins. I really think that was her concern. And which was stupid in a number of ways, because I don't think it would have given all the benefits before the election at all. So I think Biden probably still would have won. Um, And also, the blame is now on you, when if you accepted the deal, McConnell would have blocked it anyway, and the blame would have been on him. So should have taken that deal for sure. Absolutely should have done that. And if not that you should have done what I've been screaming for them to do for a while, which is just pass a clean stimulus checks bill, $1,200 for the remainder of the COVID crisis every month, pass standalone legislation like that through the house. Then you pressure the hell out of the Senate. You pressure the hell out of McConnell. You pressure the hell out of Trump. Trump was actually on board for up to $2,000 checks. He would have been for that legislation. So if you organize properly, you pass the standalone stimulus checks bill. That's the way you play politics, and that's the way you probably win. You could have potentially won on that policy. You really could have done it. And even if you say, okay, well, that's going to get whittled down, okay, then you settle on a $1,000 a month for everybody for the remainder of the crisis. That's still solid. That's still really good. That's Andrew Yang's idea of universal basic income, $1,000 a month. That's what I would have done. Now, they didn't do any of this, right? So at the end of the day... If you're an elected Democrat and you're not in leadership and it comes down to this or literally nothing, they got your arm twisted in the same way that your arm was twisted under Obamacare. You know that negotiations are over. You're not going to get single payer at that point in 2009, 2010. So what are you going to do? This or nothing? Okay, well, I guess having 10 to 20 million more people get health care is good, even though we need 40 million more people to get health care. So that's why it's a tough decision, man. Legislating is hard. It's absolutely hard. Because then if you vote for this, in the next in the next election cycle, what happens? Somebody runs ads against you saying that you're in favor of the three-martini deduction, right? Somebody runs ads saying you're in favor of the double-dip deduction. So you're in favor of these corporate giveaways. Now, if you don't vote for it, then you still get attacked because in the next election, they run ads against you saying you were against $600 giving to $600 per person in the United States. You were against $300 a week unemployment insurance. So you didn't help people in their time of need. There's no winning. There's no winning. Either way, they can attack you. Either way, they're going to run ads. So it's tough, man. But anyway, you guys are split. Now, I think the people who are leaning know. Like, I get it. I get the people who are leaning know what they're thinking. They're thinking this is a slap in the face and this is a joke. You want to just give me $600? That's it? And it's been, what, nine months? It was nine months. We got one $1,200 check. Now we're going to get a $600 check. By the way, it's means tested, so it's only for people who make $75,000 a year or less. This is nowhere near enough. You can't pay rent anywhere in the country with just this $600. And people are back on their rent four or five months. So this is going to do Dicky McGee's act. It's not enough. It's not enough. So the people who want to vote no, they, they would vote no because they're saying, this is a slap in the face. This is absurd. This isn't anywhere near enough. This is a joke if you think that this is really sufficient. So I get it, man. I get the no votes. I do. Um, But I also get the yes votes because, again, I I think this is akin to, like, at the very last minute, the Obamacare decision where Bernie Sanders was even like, yeah, I'm going to vote for that. Although he's not the best bellwether because he also cast some wrong votes, crime bill, CARES Act, so on and so forth. But uh, I do think this is a tough one, and that's why I think the results are what they are, 50.9% to 49.1%. That's wild. Okay. Okay. Next. Oh, boy. I have to show you these polls because they're a stark reminder of where the country is at right now when it comes to COVID and when it comes to the economy and when it comes to everything, everything appears to be falling apart. So according to the HuffPo pollster, which combines 13 well-respected polling organizations, Nancy Pelosi's approval rating is 28.6%. And to tell you the truth, I think that's on the high end for her. I do. Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is 21.3%. So he's significantly lower than Pelosi, although him and Pelosi are both in the 20s. Now, perhaps this is the most interesting, but if you go over to the Economist uh, YouGov poll that just came out, uh, Congress's approval rating is 13%. 13%. That is... I believe a record. I believe that's the lowest I've ever seen it. Can we get to single digits? Can we get to single digits? I'd be willing to bet the answer is yes. We're not too far away from single digits. You know, one more mess up and we might even get to 5% or less. And I like what everybody else pointed out on this. They're like, wait, 13% does seem kind of high. Like, who are those 13% that if you go and talk to them about Congress, they're like, they're just wonderful. They're swell. Swell? (laughs) I went back to, like, 1918. (laughs) Gee, gosh golly, Papa, I think they're doing swell. Oh, fiddlesticks. (laughs) Um, No, I think that those people are delusional, or they're seriously something off there, you know? I think Congress is doing a wonderful job. What? How? Based on what? Why would you think that? Give me any reason. And they'd have nothing. Of course they'd have nothing because Congress is doing a horrendous job. So, listen, I hate to be a broken record, except I don't. don't hate that at all. I think it's necessary. Um, But when you look at a situation where the leader of the Democrats in the House, her approval rating is 28.6%. Mitch McConnell's approval rating is 21.3%. And Congress's approval rating is 13%. My message to the people who ideologically agree with me in Congress is this. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of to go metaphorically guns blazing at everyone and everything around you? There's nothing to be afraid of. If anything, your approval rating will skyrocket if you point out this farce, if you point out this, corrupt, corporate, kleptocracy, oligarchy scam that's going on around you. People will think you're a hero. And this absolutely links into the force-to-vote the conversation, which we've been having now for seemingly a week or two. Um, standing up to people who are despised is politically brilliant. It's strategically intelligent. There were only upsides to that. And uh, listen, when we have that conversation, it's unfortunate now because it's get, it is getting ugly out there. I'm seeing the same things a lot of you guys are seeing. I'm seeing Jank and Anna and Jimmy and a lot of these lefty uh, commentators who I love and respect. They're at each other's throats now, and it's getting personal, and it's getting ugly. And, um, you know, I just did a segment the other day talking about leftist infighting. And honestly, I think rule number one, and this might be the only rule, is we're, none of us are dumb, okay? We generally get it who agrees with us broadly and who doesn't, who's with us like 80% of the time or more and who isn't. We all get that. We all get that. You know an ally when you see an ally. And so the thing that's upsetting is when everybody goes after everybody else's intentions and motivations. You know, the idea, oh, you're a grifter, and you're a sellout, and it's not true. It's not true. You know who your allies are and who your allies aren't, and everybody's being dense if they really think, like, you know, other people in the lefty commentator world are sellouts or grifters or whatever it may be. And when it gets personal like this, it clouds the issue, guys. It really does. It clouds the issue. The issue is Medicare for all, and we should all be talking about Medicare for all. And I'm more than willing and I'm open to having those conversations about the strategic disagreements without going for the jugular and without accusing people of terrible things. Um, But having said that, of course, I think the position that's the correct position is, oh, hell yes, we take on this fight. And I've gone over the arguments a million times, well, I'll do it a million more because I'm actually surprised at the resistance to some of these points out there. Because it just strikes me that people think they've thought it through, but they actually really haven't thought it through at all. So there's a number of ways to approach this. But when it comes to force the vote, there's the principled argument and there's the strategic argument. I'll get to the strategic argument, but on the principled front, some people only need to hear the principled argument and they're like, I get it. That makes perfect sense. And the principled argument is take yourself back in time to when there was slavery. Take yourself back in time to just before women could vote. Take yourself back in time to just before desegregation. And it would have been commonplace. The duh position back then was like, listen, of course I agree with you in theory. Of course I agree with you idealistically. Of course I think you're right on the substance. But here's why fighting right now is not necessarily the best idea. And here's why we need to do this procedural thing and that procedural thing and that procedural thing before we get to the point where we can do the thing that you're saying. Now, looking back, we look at that and we go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because you don't, there are certain things that can't wait, morally, ethically, they can't wait. When you have 315,000 Americans dead in a pandemic, millions of people with COVID, 15 plus million people who lost their insurance just in the past year, That's not a luxury we have. So the argument, what you have to understand is that the argument of, oh, not right now, oh, not like this, oh, do this procedural thing first, that argument to people who really believe that healthcare is, is a human right that we should have had decades ago, the argument does kind of sound like we, it's 1959 or 1960 and we're in Mississippi and somebody in the group says, we need to, try, we need to fight right now to anti-segregation and do everything we can. And somebody else says, I agree with you in theory, but... And it's just like, uh, no, that sounds really silly, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Same thing with talking about a woman's right to vote in 1918. Well, I agree with that in theory, but they haven't voted yet. You think you're going to change that? How quickly you going to change that? You even think that's possible? I agree with you idealistically, but first you need to do this, 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 and this. And that's not enough, right? So if you really believe in something in principle, it is almost like strategy takes a back seat and you do everything you can. You dot every I, you cross every T, you take on every fight, you build whatever coalition you have to build in order to get it done. And so if the principle comes first for a lot of people, then that's the only argument that some people need right there. But then you get into the strategic argument, which again, I think is maybe even more compelling because there are plenty of people who do say, hey, I agree with you in principle, but I think your strategy is wrong. but how do they acknowledge the fact or address the fact that the Tea Party used strategies like this, and it worked. They repealed Obamacare over 50 times. And then they, the, they used the enthusiasm that that generated in their base to get more Tea Party members in there. And eventually, remember, the Tea Party culminated with Donald Trump's win in 2016. He came right out of that movement, like the birther movement, right? These are far-right factions. And What you saw is the Tea Party, through using strategies like this, where they hated their own Republican leadership, they pushed Republican leadership even further right. Virgil Texas brought this up the other day when I was on the Bad Faith podcast. He was saying how John McCain was in favor and proposed a moderate immigration reform bill. Then he got a Tea Party challenger from his right, and John McCain shifted far right on immigration. So that's what we're talking about, but with healthcare, but with Medicare for all. Imagine taking a wishy-washy, moderate, centrist, corporatist, Democratic senator, and then forcing them to be in favor of Medicare for all. Because we run unapologetic campaigns, we do unapologetic marketing, we grow a spine, we grow a backbone, and, and we take down everybody inside who doesn't agree with it, and we use the bully pulpit, and we use people power. So point is, This is it's not like we just came up with this idea and we're like, let's give it a shot, even if it's bullheaded and stupid. No, I'm looking at the practical, pragmatic reality of recent political history when the Tea Party did this stuff and it worked. So it's not just that this is correct in principle, but our strategy is stupid. No, it's correct in principle and the strategy is correct. So if you win on Medicare for all, you win. And if you lose, you still win because you drew a line in the sand. And guess what? 70% 70% of the American people are in favor of Medicare for all. And up to 90% of the Democratic Party is in favor of Medicare for all. You want to take on that fight every single day. Every single Medicare Care for all supporter, just one re-election. Every single one. Even Katie Porter, who is in a plus-six Republican district. And you don't want to take this fight on? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? It's not going to embarrass you if you take this fight on. It's going to embarrass every single person who's not in favor of it. And that's a good thing. Okay, so. But I do want to respond to... A couple objections to this. People mean it in all sincerity, so probably the most common response is, you simply don't have the numbers. So what's the point, okay? Now again, I just explained, even if you lose, you win because you shifted the Overton window and then the center of the party's gonna have to catch up to it, okay? So even if you lose, you win, but stop and think about that argument for a second. You can use that argument literally at any time. We don't have the numbers. We don't have the numbers. You want to know why I say that? Because there was a time 10 years ago where we had Democratic supermajorities. You maxed out on how many Democrats you're going to have within reason, right? You maxed out Democratic supermajorities. And guess what? They said back then, what are we going to do? We don't have the votes. Not only do we don't have the votes for Medicare for all. We don't have the votes for a public option. What are we going to do? We don't have the votes. What are we going to do? We don't have the votes. So if your reading of the situation is dependent upon whether or not we have the votes right now, you're waiting for a day that will never come, ever. So that means you're kind of resigned to, even though I want Medicare for all, I admit we're never going to get it. You create your political opportunities. That's what you do through force of will and through public pressure campaigns. It was the original public pressure campaign that got us from having like 10 or 12 Medicare for All supporters in the House to 118. And we helped partake in that. We told you guys to make phone calls on this show. And on other lefty shows, they did the same thing. We were able to drive it from 12 to 118. Now imagine the amount of public pressure, not just generated from lefty YouTube shows, no. The amount of public pressure if during a pandemic where 315,000 Americans are dead, we force a vote on Medicare for All the anger of hell would rain down on every single Democrat who's not in favor of it. Let me tell you something. Yes, Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies, they're very powerful. And they've bought and own many Democratic politicians. The one thing that can make them back off of their allegiance to those special interests is if they know, if they feel in their bones, if I don't vote for Medicare for all, my career is done. So you can get them to flip. But it requires massive public pressure campaigns. So in other words, Whether you have a Democratic supermajority or whether you have a situation like we have right now, politics is not stagnant. It's fluid. So you do everything you can to get the votes. Sometimes you build coalitions with people. Sometimes it's carrots. Sometimes it's sticks. Sometimes it's public pressure campaigns and calling people out directly. This is what you do. This is politics. So everybody just looks at the vote and assumes, like, that's all we have right now. (laughs) Let's not do it. But again, you can make those same points when we have Democratic supermajorities, because you can see we still have blue dogs, and you go, well, what do you want me to say? The three or four blue dogs are going to hold us up. Well, then get to work on that. Get to work on that. You better go talk to them. You better go see if you could build a bridge and build a coalition. You better go see if it's a carrot or stick situation. You better go do the hard work of politics. So it doesn't matter if it's a Democratic supermajority or if it's where we are right now. On paper, it's still nominally going to be a case. We don't have the votes. We're never going to have the votes. We have to try to go get the votes. That's the way this works. And again, even if you lose, you still win. Because politically, you drew a line in the sand. Everybody knows who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And I think everybody's underestimating just how much outrage there would be if politicians vote against universal health care in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. Okay? Now, another objection people bring up is, hey, man... What you don't understand, Kyle, is that the real way to do politics is once you're in D.C., yeah, behind the scenes, you've got to cut these backroom deals. And the left is trying to get these wins in negotiations that you're just not, you don't know what's going on. Now, my response to that is I would be willing, if that was true and there were results, I would totally concede and say, great, keep doing those backroom negotiations. But the reality is we just got the story the other day. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was snubbed for a committee seat. It was, it was viewed as a foregone conclusion that she was going to win. And then she was snubbed at the last minute. So if these backroom deals that the left is trying to cut with leadership, if they, they work so well, why is it that the left always gets rolled in these negotiations and in these talks? Why is that? Because those backroom deals don't work. And I'll leave us on this point because it's the most important point. One of the only tools, if not the only tool that the left has is people power, is people power. Look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Look at all the other Justice Democrats. They're the most popular people in the House of Representatives, by far. They have the most Twitter followers, the most engagement online, the most people who are willing to go to bat for them and defend them come hell or high water. They have the strongest support. Hakeem Jeffries doesn't have an army that he could sum with one tweet. Okay? That's not a thing. And what the left effectively does is they say, I'm... I'm going to take my one tool off the table and I'm going to go into Nancy Pelosi's world, which is backroom Machiavellian deal making, smoke filled backroom deal making. And they get rolled every time. And then it never occurs to them hey, maybe this is stupid, and what I should do is use my only tool, the public pressure campaigns. There's almost no problem in politics that more attention, care, devotion, and activity from the people can't fix. So use the bully pulpit. Use your people. They're just waiting for the word. So listen, we gave them time. We gave them space. What do they have to show for it? Dick. Dick. So use these strategies. This was the whole idea, guys. Listen, as a co-founder of Justice Democrats, I'm in a position where I can make this case because I was in the room. The whole point when we co-founded it, one of the original names of Justice Democrats before we settled on Justice Democrats, I wanted to call it the left Tea Party. Now, they said, oh, there's a negative connotation with that too much, so it's probably not the right way to go. Okay, fair enough. Obviously, I conceded on that argument because it's not named the left Tea Party, so I get it. But the reason why I wanted to call it that is because that's the model. The model is let's be exactly like the Tea Party and make Democratic leadership hate us as much as Republican leadership. Does it look like Democratic leadership hates the left as much as Republican leadership hates the left? Actually, they do. They do. But the Justice Democrats think that they don't. And act like, you know, they call Nancy Pelosi mama bear and try to get those backroom deals and try to do, go tit for tat with leadership. They're never going to like you. They're always going to stab you in the back. Because with them, it's ideological. You're a threat to capital. You're a threat to moneyed interest. You're a threat to the donors. Doesn't matter how nice you are behind the scenes. They're always going to stab you in the back. Take that to heart and use the only weapon you have, the power of the people. Get us involved. Force the vote. Force the vote. Now, by the way, again, final thing. I know I probably said that before, but... David Serolda is correct, because David Schroeder said, no, 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 don't just force the vote. Also, here are other things you can and should do, and these should be demands as well. Namely, Neil needs to get off his com- committee seat, because he blocks stuff like this anyway. Great, agreed. Neil's got to get off his committee seat. That's got to be a demand. Have a list of four or five demands. And, and again, read Sorota's article, because it listed, hey, here are all the things you should ask for, along with the vote. Sorota's completely right. I co-signed what Sorota said 1,000%. But that's what you do. What Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been doing, and she's been going out there and saying, oh, no, it's not a good idea to do this because we don't have the votes, and so it would be a waste of time. So totally disregarding the politics angle of this. But then what she'll do is she'll substitute other things instead of the forcing a vote on Medicare for All. Like, oh, what if we did get the waiver so states could do their own Medicare for All bills, and what if we did get the committee seats? So in other words, she's putting it as an either-or when it's not an either-or. You should demand all of those things. So here we are. Here we are. They're a paper tiger, guys. The establishment is a paper tiger. That's what they are. 28% for Nancy Pelosi, 21% for Mitch McConnell, 13% for Congress. Take them on, and you will be rewarded. You'll be surprised how much you're rewarded by the voters if you just try. Okay.
2: Okay, next. Here we go, baby. Here we go.
1: Joe Biden um, is doing some very Joe Biden things at the moment. Axios reports the following. New, Joe Biden is considering some well-known Republicans for Commerce Secretary as a way to signal to red state Americans he understands their concerns and plans to address them. I love this story, man. So understand, Trump's real base like his hardcore ride-or-die people, they're refusing to even call Biden president-elect. They think Donald Trump won. They're totally down casually for a coup. They think nothing would be better than a coup. They would want the military to keep Trump in office for another four years, and they would laugh at Biden as he says, I'm the rightful owner, or rightful owner, rightful winner. What are you doing? So those are the people he's reaching out to. He says, red-state Americans. A lot of these people think that Joe Biden is in a satanic pedophile cabal. It doesn't matter what you do, Joe. Those people are going to hate you. It's not about like they're not soberly analyzing your actions and then making judgments based off that. No, they're not doing that at all. Joe, they hate you. They despise you. You're a Democrat. They hate Democrats. This is like tribalism. Hyperpartisanship 101. How do you not get this? But that gets to the main point here, which is, it's act- like it's totally on purpose from Joe. And this is part and parcel of that democratic, corporatist ideology, because Obama did the same thing. So President Obama nominated Republicans for top jobs at the Department of Defense, transportation. And initially Obama even named Republican Senator Judd Gregg to run commerce, which again, Biden wants this person for commerce secretary. So it was like all over the place. He also appointed a lot of people who Citigroup told him to appoint, Obama did in his administration, corporatist 101. But like, this was the idea of who me bro? I'm above the fray. I don't care about this red state stuff and this blue state stuff, I'm above it. I believe in the United States of America. So I'll have people in my administration who despise me, along with people who don't despise me. I'll have people in my administration that are against everything I say I'm for, not just people who are for the things I say I'm for. So, but there is a reason why he does this. And the reason why he does this is he can play the holier-than-now triangulation game. And also, he doesn't really disagree with these people a lot of the times. These uh, elite Republicans who he would put in his administration. He doesn't really disagree with them. Like, they're probably going to find a lot of common ground on maybe some minor deregulation here and there. You know, I don't think Biden is as bad on deregulation as the Republicans are, but I'm sure he's in favor of some kind of deregulation. Um, Cutting Social Security and Medicare. He very famously wanted a grand bargain and to do exactly that. He argued for it his entire career. So, you know, yes, if you find... You're going to find Republicans who want to do that. That's one of their main positions, the establishment Republicans. That's what they want to do. So, yeah, putting these people in charge, he's like, I agree with them. I agree with them. So it's just, it's so sad because nothing that's actually progressive is ever going to get done. I mean, I mean it you're never going to get like the main progressive priorities ever done because Biden doesn't believe in it. He's surrounding himself with people who would tell him that's the worst thing he could possibly do. And so when you get Republicans elected, you get Republican legislation. When you get Democrats elected, you get Republican legislation or like centrist legislation. Maybe on social issues, they do some democratic stuff, but outside of that economic stuff, a lot of it is corporate at best. So, here we are. I mean, it's just embarrassing, man. But you have to, we have to get through our heads. Like, We kind of knew this was going to happen, right? Like, and this is why I was so disappointed with Bernie for not fighting the proper way and not making demands. Because there are, are going to be more Republicans in Biden's administration than Bernie supporters. Even the people who are nominally on the left that Biden has picked so far, like all two of them, I don't think any of them were actual Bernie supporters. So he will have more Republicans than Bernie supporters, even though Bernie supporters make up 30 to 35 percent of the frickin party base. Think about that. Think about that. We always get snubbed. And that's why for the nine thousandth time you have to demand your voice be heard, demand to be respected, demand our policy goals are met. And that goes for all the Justice Democrats who want to go along to get along and go tit for tat to get some pats on the head and get some concessions behind the scenes. That goes for them. And that goes for Bernie Sanders and how he handled this terrible transition where he didn't demand anything. He gave Biden everything he wanted, and then he had to go do a public campaign. Please, sir, can you please pick me for Treasury Secretary? I would totally appreciate that, sir. Oh, my God. Bernie, you could have demanded that when you were still in the race and he would have had to give it to you. This is what Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar did. Mayor Pete was just picked for transportation secretary. You want to know why? Because he chose he was going to be in the administration. I'm sure he picked transportation secretary. They were going to give him OMB. He said, I don't want that. So he had conversations with Biden. Listen, you want me to drop out and endorse you? What are you going to give me? What am I getting? And he gave an answer. Bernie, on the other hand, I'm going to drop out, not demand anything. And then afterwards, when you're going to snub me anyway and screw me anyway and stab me in the back, I'll say, but can you please rethink that? Because I did try to help you. Oh uh, We gotta wise up, man. The left has to wise up. Okay. Um, Let me take a quick break and then when we come back I got some amazing new poll numbers on the COVID relief bill and the most important issues in the country. You're not going to want to miss this. Stay right there. We'll be right back. All right, I'm back, y'all. I am back. And I still have a million stories for you. A million of them, I say. Okay, new polls. Let me give you some some new polling information. New poll's out on the COVID relief bill. This one here is from Data for Progress. New poll, voters overwhelmingly support another round of $1,200 coronavirus relief checks. So it's 88% support. Jesus Christ. That's amazing. 9% oppose. I guess we found the, like, hardcore libertarians, the anarcho-capitalists. And um, 2% don't know. 85% of voters also want Congress to pass a coronavirus relief bill before the end of the year. Now, they have reached a deal on that. Um, For more information on it, check out the actual segment where I go through the specific provisions. Shout out to Jeff Stein for always putting this stuff out there in the most digestible way possible. Um, But isn't that something? Basically, 9 out of 10, 90%, of the American people are like, yeah, we need another $1,200. Of course. And listen, I think there's a really important point embedded in this, which is politics that materially improves people's lives wins and and is incredibly... So it's almost like to the extent that there's silver bullet, a magic formula in politics, it's this. Actually fight for people actually try to improve their lives. And then you'll be rewarded, 90%. I mean, we have COVID-19, at least 315,000 Americans dead. The economic implosion as a result of that, the food bank lines are insanely long, longest I've ever seen in my lifetime for sure. We have about 60% of small businesses gonna close permanently. There's incredible hurt out there. And guys, you have to think about it like this. We're doing nothing except for asking our own money back, right? Like we pay taxes. Unfortunately, those taxes oftentimes go to Wall Street bailouts. Those taxes go to the military industrial complex. They go to fund things that you and I wouldn't agree are good things. In fact, they're terrible things. But when we say, hey, give us another stimulus check, in a giant economic downturn with a pandemic, really what we're saying effectively is just give us our own money back. We paid taxes, now it's time for the government to be there for us in our time of need. That's not too much to ask for, which is why only 9% of people oppose it. Only 9% of people oppose it. That says something, doesn't it? Um, So then let me show you this too, because this is also interesting. What's the most important issue Healthcare, 27%. Jobs in the economy, 24%. Civil rights and civil liberties, 10%. Climate change, 10%. And then everything else you can see is single digits down there if you go down the line. But look at that, man. So, in other words, again, I hate to say I told you so, except I don't. I love to say it right now. I want to bathe in this I told you so, and I'm going to do that. Um, the most important issue, healthcare. We're always screaming that that's the most important issue. Always. Medicare for all. Every single Medicare for All supporter won re-election, even Medicare for All supporters in Republican plus six districts. That's Katie Porter. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Health care is the most important, 27%, and then right behind it, jobs in the economy. And what are we always talking about on this show? Medicare for All, living wage. I told you guys that the new thing that, like, hopped the list of most important policies in my eyes, UBI this year. UBI this year became one of my top policies. Because when you look at a situation like we have right now with a pandemic and a depression, what's the most effective, efficient, direct way to help people? Cut them a check. Cut them a check. So you want to call universal basic income? Call universal basic income. You want to call it social security for all? In the same way we have Medicare for all, social security for all? Yeah. Call it that. We'll call it whatever you want to call it. Giving checks to people on a monthly basis as a bare minimum, like, hey, you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to eat. You're going to be able to have a roof over your head. I think that's awesome. I think that's the best thing you could possibly do. And clearly, the voters agree. Again, this isn't rocket science. Nine out of 10 people, we need more stimulus checks. 27% of people, health care is the number one issue. By the way, that's also because 15 million Americans lost their health care since the beginning of COVID. So we have, we have a health care system. 315,000 people dead from COVID. Millions of people have had COVID. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. Pre-COVID, you had 45,000 people die every year because they don't have health care. You had tens of millions of people without health insurance. Of course, health care is going to be the number one issue. Of course, we pay more than the rest of the world, and we don't even have everybody covered. And our outcomes are worse. I'm telling you, man, it's time for a single-payer Medicare for All system. It absolutely is. And it drives me crazy because every time I look at the empirical data on this, it's just the answer slaps you across the face. Slaps you across the face. It's like, hey, Commonwealth Fund releases a study, what, every few years. We're 11th out of 11 every time. Every time. Forget that old World World Health Organization story or study where we were 37th because that was from like the year 2000. It's really old. So you could say that's outdated. Don't use it anymore. I agree. But, but... The Commonwealth Fund study, they do it every few years. And they study eleven healthcare systems, and they're like, you're the worst out of in the developed world. Canada has, you know, a system where it's public funding of private institutions. France has a similar thing going on. NHS, you know, depending on which study you look at, I should be clear. According to some studies, it's not the NHS that's number one, but according to others, it is the NHS that's number one. Um, and NHS is the most socialized slash nationalized system you could have it's public funding of public institutions so in other words even the doctors they're not they don't have private practices they're they're paid by the government it's, it's they're on the government payroll so everything is government when it comes to health care and I have to say of all the things that I'm quote unquote radicalized on even though I don't think this is radical at all oh it's healthcare care I think everything involved with health should be nationalized I think you have the healthcare, uh, health insurance system, of course, nationalized health care. Um, I lean in favor of nationalization for that as well. Big Pharma. I mean, the way that Big Pharma works here is disgusting, to say the least. You have a lot of, like, universities with government money. They do the research to find these cures and these medicines. And then the health insurance companies, uh, or excuse me, Big Pharma rushes in, buys up the rights to the stuff that was just discovered with tax money, and then they Price gouge you and mark it up massively and then charge you again. So you paid for the research through taxes and then you have to pay for the drug when you need it. Nationalize it, man. Nationalize it for sure. The idea that, like, oh, you need the private market and you need innovation to get this stuff developed, that's not true at all. Oftentimes, the breakthroughs when it comes to science and medicine, it's government funded. Like NASA, for example, we have NASA. We got to, um, you know, the moon. That was the government doing it. You didn't need, necessarily need competition in order to get it done. You can make the argument that I guess we were kind of in competition with the Soviet Union and we wanted to beat them. So there's some aspect of competition. But in terms of the funding mechanisms, that was all government. So, of course, you can develop new medicine with, with you know, public money and through the government. Have the government hire the best people in the world and get them to work on it. That's it. The idea that like, that incentive is necessary, that's a myth. It's a myth especially when it comes to health. This is the last thing you want in the private marketplace. And I'm not as far, as, as far left as a lot of you guys who watch this show. I wouldn't say that everything, you know, should be nationalized. I don't agree with that. But this is one of those areas where you definitely should nationalize it. So anyway, cut people these stimulus checks. We need more stimulus checks. We need universal basic income. Let's do Medicare for all. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting when every time you read a poll, it sort of verifies what our basic worldview is. Okay, next. Oh, wait, did I fuck this up? I need a Trump thing. Yeah. Fucked up my graphics, y'all. Fucked up my graphics. Give me a second here. Up a Trump graphic because it's necessary for this story. Okay, there we go. There we go. Here's here's Daddy Trump. All right, here we go. Here's an important and interesting dynamic that we just learned about the COVID relief negotiations. Jeff Stein from Washington Post tells us this. Breaking, White House aides intervened Thursday to prevent President Trump from demanding Congress approve checks of $2,000 per person sources say, Trump told allies he wants at least $1,200 and as much as $2,000. Aides told Trump his demands could blow up talks. That's amazing. Donald Trump really doesn't understand the immense power that he has. Because, no, that wouldn't have blown up negotiations. It wouldn't have blown up negotiations at all. What it would have done is forced the hand of a certain number of Republicans to agree with him, because even though Trump just lost the general election, he's actually by far and away the most popular Republican figure in the entire country. So let me break this down for you, because, I mean, it's one of those stories where it's like, what could have been if this guy was smarter? If he was smarter, we could have seen some incredible things over the past four years. So... Trump's you know, top advisors, Trump's top aides, a lot of them are the hardcore Kool-Aid drinking Ayn Rand types, the anarcho-capitalist types, the you know, Milton Friedman types, where they think you always want to cut taxes for the wealthy, you always want to deregulate the economy, uh, you never want to use the power of the government to help the little guy economically. So they're, they're probably against original stimulus checks. You know, like that, that's the kind of people that Trump has surrounded himself with. Used to be Larry Kudlow. I think still is Larry Kudlow, actually, to some extent. He's got Steve Mnuchin, the Goldman Sachs guys who were around him. Gary Cohn was around him. So he was really surrounded by neocons and trickle-downers. Okay? So but what Trump understands that they don't is he has the instinct on how to get a crowd behind him. And so what he knows is, okay, we have a pandemic and the economy is not doing well, even though he pretends it's doing well. He knows it's not really doing that well. So he thinks, what do people need? They need money, which is why the last round of stimulus talks, remember, he was adamant that he wanted his name on the checks. Now, what happened? I thought the Republicans think like, oh, we don't want the government to send people checks. That breeds dependence and laziness, and that's bad. We want a free market. We don't want big government. Trump was like, ideology, schmideology. I don't care about that at all. I want to get elected. This is how I'd get elected. Put my name on a check and send it to people, right? So that's what he was thinking. So here we are now with these negotiations going on for stimulus checks for a big relief bill. The Democrats were the ones who were asking for more money in stimulus checks. Every single Democrat was for those $1,200 checks, and only one Republican was, Josh Hawley, okay? If Donald Trump got directly involved in the negotiations and Donald Trump said... Listen, man, I want $2,000 checks for every American. You know what would have happened? Panic. You would have had the Democrats agree with Trump, even though they'd like to disagree with him on everything. On this one, they would have agreed with him. And then you would have had, Hawley would have backed whatever Trump was calling for. And then there would have been pressure. I guarantee you at least, at least five to 10 other Republicans would have said, I back what the president is doing. Why? Because again, if they buck him, they fear his ire. So imagine Donald Trump. He calls for these two thousand dollar checks, and then somebody, some Republican, speaks out against it in the Senate. T minus two hours before this guy has a tweet out with that guy's exact name, calls him a rhino, says don't donate to him, don't vote for him, and they know that that's devastating. Guys, they still want Trump to campaign for Leffler and Purdue in Georgia, even though he just lost the election. And he lost Georgia. They know he's the most popular. He's the most, he's the best they got. So you can't buck the big man. You can't do it or it's career suicide. And this is what I mean when I said this guy really had the opportunity to bring about some political uh, realignments, but ultimately he's a cuck. And that's the sad part is that, so his instinct was like $2,000 checks for people. And then as soon as his aides were like, don't do that, it's not a good idea. He was like, okay, right. It's not a good idea. I'm not going to do that. This is the exact same thing that happened with foreign policy, right? We're going to get out of Iraq. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. It's going to be tremendous. We're going to rebuild our home, America first. And then you have some people behind the scenes, probably a general, wearing a suit, right? Or not a suit, wearing the uniform, walking in and telling Trump, Mr. President, that's not a good idea for reasons X, Y, and Z. He's like, you know what? You're right. You look straight out of central casting. I agree. It probably is not a good idea to get out of there. I'm going to rethink this one. That's what I'm going to do. So he'll say, his instinct will be to get out of the war, and then he'll be talked into staying in the war. Now he split the difference. He's going to leave a couple thousand troops in the Middle East, which is still not a withdrawal. That's the same shit Obama did. And it just the troop levels were eventually pushed right back up. Okay? Not enough. He did it with that, and now he's doing it with stimulus checks. All it took was his aides to tell him, oh, no, Mr. President, you can't do that. That would blow up negotiations. He's like, you're right, I'm not going to do that. When if he chimed in and he said $2,000 checks, the Democrats were, on, were to already be on board with that because they were asking for roughly that anyway. And then you would add Hawley, and you would have been able to chip away five or ten other Republicans. House passes it. Senate passes it. It's Trump with all the Democrats and five to ten Republicans. And we get a bill with $2,000 checks. And then he runs around and brags and takes credit, which I don't care as long as people get help, right? But he didn't do it. His cuck instinct. Really ruined them. Really ruined them. It's just so sad. We, we had an opportunity here. We had an opportunity. We had an opportunity because he did this with student loans, right? He's like, oh, we're going to suspend student loan debt for X amount of time. He did it because he knew he had to do it because of COVID. He could have expanded Medicare to everybody. And what's going to happen? The Republicans are going to speak out against a Trump executive order that's giving everybody health care? Good luck, bitch. Good luck. But he, he very rarely, if ever, follows through on the instinct stuff, which sometimes is correct. Oh, what could have been, ladies and gentlemen, what could have been, what could have been, what could have been. And by the way, I totally believe this story because we already know that you had Trump and Mnuchin had a $1.8 trillion stimulus deal on the table that they were offering to Pelosi, and she rejected it. Now, I wonder what would have happened if Pelosi accepted it because it was a good deal, better than the one that they're talking about now. Um, And then it goes to McConnell, and McConnell would block it. Would Trump finally grow a pair and step up to McConnell, call him out? Because Mitch McConnell's approval rating is 21%. Donald Trump's approval rating is, you know, 46% or something like that. You're more than double as popular as this guy. He takes on Mitch McConnell. (coughs) It's a rapskies for Mitch, son. Trump's people go, go right for the jugular. What could have been, ladies and gentlemen, what could have been if this guy could follow through on anything or was really smart enough to uh, know how to get his way in an intelligent, strategic way. Okay, next.
2: Okay, baby.
1: So here we go. There's a Democrat by the name of Mark Warner. Um, He went on Fox, and he slammed the idea of stimulus checks during this pandemic to Neil Cavuto. Take note of the argument that he uses.
3: compromise, Senator,
2: that the view of these, uh, the election of these I, is that you caved, you caved. Do you think you well, caved? Well, what well, we, uh, do and others who say that?
4: What I'm saying is I'm not going to be the Grinch to stole Christmas and say to people who lose their unemployment the day after Christmas so long, farewell or folks are going to get kicked out of their apartment on January 2nd, we're not going to do something to actually pay the landlords back for their lost rent, I mean there will be people on on the exchange, this is one area I actually agree with Rand Paul in his previous comment. I would much rather, and our bipartisan proposal said, let's give this money targeted to those most in need, like the unemployed, rather than giving everyone a check, whether they had any economic loss or not. Now, that's not going to be the end of the day, prevent me, because compromises are about, you don't get the whole thing. The fact that you have Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump you know, together on this checks-for-everybody idea, I don't think that's a smart way.
1: Did you catch that at the end there? The fact that you have Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump together on this checks-for-everybody idea, I don't think that's a smart way. In Mark Warner's mind, that's an argument. That's an ar- I don't like Trump. I don't like Bernie. They agree on something. It's got to be wrong. Uh, he has terminal Washington brain. He's swimming in the deep end of the swamp, and he's been there for decades. And he thinks like, "What do you mean? The swamp is awesome. The swamp is correct. I know, because I'm in the swap. No, Mark Warner, that's a terrible argument. That's a terrible point. I don't care if it was Genghis Khan who came up with the idea of stimulus checks. You, You evaluate ideas and policies based on their own merits. None of this attack the messenger shit. Who cares who the messenger is? But this is how these guys think. If you're a corrupt corporatist, if you look at Bernie Sanders for checks for everybody, and you're like,
2: <laughs> how silly. <laughs> he actually wants to help people. <laughs> he wants to help everybody. <laughs> I'm against that.
1: Oh, my God. also like when he said, you know, I agree with Rand Paul on this. Um, the extremes agree, but I'm with Rand Paul how you need to target this to those in need. As if a stimulus bill with no stimulus checks is targeting those in need. No, that's not the case. In fact, that bill, the, the Manchin-Romney one, that's the one that he's talking about, I think, or Manchin-McConnell, something like that. Um, you bailed out the defense industry even though they don't need a bailout in that bill. How are you going to pretend like, hmm, we're just trying to help those in need like Raytheon and Boeing They need a lot of help these days. We're only bombing seven different countries. We need to get that up to like 12 or so. And on these issues, just for the record, Rand Paul is the extreme one. So he's agreeing with the extreme one as he pretends like the extremes are Trump and Bernie. Trump and Bernie are with mainstream American opinion on this issue of stimulus checks. 90% of the American people, 88 to be exact, say we want more stimulus checks. So he's with the extremes. He's with Rand Paul who's libertarian-leaning, libertarians don't want to do anything to checks. That's the, that's the true libertarian position. Big government is bad. That would be big government. I'm against it. Oh, even though there's, like, a, a, a pandemic and an economic depression? Don't care. I'm against it. As a matter of principle, I'm against it. That's how they think. And this corporate Democrat's like, I agree with Rand Paul. you got to give money targeted to those in need, like Raytheon and Boeing. By the way, the other thing that was in that bill, the liability shield. You know what the liability shield is? If you get COVID as a result of some company they're taking away your ability to sue that company if that company didn't take proper precautions, for example, put you in a dangerous situation. See, that's what that bill was actually for. Now, thankfully, this version of the bill is dead and gone, right? And there was more negotiating that happened, and you did get stimulus checks into the final version of the bill that they're voting on today. Um, But it is only $600 stimulus checks as opposed to $1,200. It is only one time. You have unemployment insurance, which is good, but it's not backdated. Like There there are issues with it. It was clearly a negotiation, and Half the people in the negotiation were like, how about we give corporations everything and people nothing? But I have to say, I really can't get over how smug and elitist this prick is. Doesn't he just look sleazy? This guy looks sleazy. He looks like he's going to sell you a vacuum cleaner, and the vacuum cleaner will fall apart when you first try to use it. But that argument of Trump and Bernie are for it, so it must be stupid. (laughs) No, actually, you have to evaluate ideas on their own merits. So, for example, Trump and Bernie are both nominally for, they say at least, I want to end the wars in the Middle East. Does that mean that's wrong? Don't answer that, Mark Warner, because you actually probably don't agree with them on that either. Like, he, what an unserious reactionary goon who just agrees with Washington, D.C. swamp consensus, and he thinks, like, that makes him smart and the extremes, like... Trump and Bernie. (laughs) So silly. You agree with 88% of Americans and want to give them more checks? (laughs) I'm against that. By the way, that same poll, only 9% oppose checks. 9% oppose checks. So he's with 9% and he's bragging about it. And also this idea that only the unemployed need help. Are you insane? There are plenty of people with jobs who got their hours cut plenty of people with gig economy jobs and there, those industries have slowed down massively you know if you're a driver and you know not as many people are traveling so you're not picking up as many people from the airport of course your business is going to be affected the idea that only the unemployed need help is insane it's insane but that's what he's pushing because he's against the stimulus checks hate him hate him hate him god damn it we got to defeat these losers they're so terrible They're like callous and indifferent to people suffering, but they frame it as if the ones who are for the solutions are radical and extreme and insane. All right, now let's go to Fox News. The idiots on Fox News had some thoughts for us on stimulus checks. Let's take a look at this.
2: And by the way, if
5: these closures continue, Brian, um, and, and the government gives these workers a check for a little while. They're going to have checks for the rest of their life because there won't be any bars and restaurants to go back to to work, and they're all going to be closed. We're all going to be forced, or these workers are all going to be forced to be on, you know, the government dole forever because they're crushing these small businesses. Maybe that's that will come back. Maybe that's the goal. Maybe.
6: Well.
4: Maybe it, Maybe it is. That's what they're doing in China. They're, they're, you know, they're
0: consolidating power.
1: I don't even know where to begin with this. So he's fearmongering about you want to give people stimulus checks? I mean, what? They're going to have checks for the rest of their lives. Okay, first of all, no, they're not, because this is what's being negotiated is a one-time stimulus check. But I wish they were talking about it for the rest of their lives. And by the way, with Social Security, that is a check for the rest of your life in your older years. Are you against Social Security? So already, I mean, it's already just like obnoxious and silly. Um, And then he says, well, they're going to be on the government dole forever. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're the people who say, hey, man, like, we pay taxes. I don't like that. I want to pay fewer taxes. So if you're paying taxes to the government and then the government cuts you back a stimulus check, aren't you just getting your own money back? Isn't that one way of looking at it? Like, you could look at this as a tax cut, right? Like, that's one way to look at this. Because if you paid in taxes more than $1,200 and then you get back $1,200, you could just say that's like a tax cut. Right. That's one way of looking at it. You could you could frame it as a subsidy. You could frame it as a tax cut. But, you know, this is just that's our money. Like we're getting back our money from the government. So he's like, oh, they'll be on the government dole forever. And also the idea that they're not going to want to work. That's what he says. People are not going to want to work. OK, well. Specifically during a pandemic, maybe, probably. But that's a good thing. It's a pandemic. We want to save lives. You go out, you're more likely to get it. You're more likely to die. We've got 315,000 Americans dead and rising steadily. So, yeah, if you don't want to work in the short term, great. That's, that would be fine. Like, countries are still locking down and everything. Some people want to go out there and roll the dice. Okay, I guess. But, yeah, some people want to stay home. I don't think that's crazy. But to the idea, like, the idea is, hey, if they're on the dole forever, maybe they'll never want to work. I don't buy that even a little bit. Maybe the, a tiny percentage would be like that. But the overwhelming majority of people... Even if you got $1,200 per month, every month, I mean, you, that's not enough to live on, really. Like, you really, really got to pinch pennies to try to make ends meet. I mean, look at, a, look at a, a, an apartment in New York City. I mean, even the, in the cheapest places, like, your rent would be $1,200. You know what I mean? So that's just your rent. Then you got to get food. Like, there's the idea that if you cut people a check, they will forever not want to work. Well, it depends on the size of the check. And really, if we don't have our basic needs met, because nobody's making enough money to get their basic needs met because there's, we still have working poor people, a minimum wage is not a living wage, well then, that money is just going to help you get your basic needs met, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm telling you, man, I definitely agree with UBI. It's one of my top issues now. I think Andrew Yang was 100% correct to put that front and center. And now you see... The political reality is changing to accept UBI as almost like a, almost like the most pragmatic solution to a lot of these problems. It, when you have an economic downturn, what's the best way to give people help? Cut them a check immediately. Right? So it's like, and it doesn't require, you know, some complex bloated bureaucracy that might not work efficiently. No, it's just cut them a check. It's the idea of social security, except doing it for all. Um, And then the funniest part is that's what they're doing in China. Does this Fox News host have any idea what they're doing in China? No. She has no idea. None of these people have any idea. But they casually comment on it. Like, that's what they do in China. And we obviously, by definition, anything they do, we don't want to ever do. What about, like, high-speed rail? That's what they're doing in China. Terrible. But, no, that's an example of them doing something good. So, like, that's not... They think that's like a debate stopper, right? Drop the mic. China bad. Got him. What? I don't even know if that's what they're doing in China. I don't know what she's talking about. Uh, it, it, I can't believe anybody watches Fox, but they do. Fewer and fewer people now, though, because some have graduated to the even more insane One America News Network and Newsmax, which is a story that I'm going to get to um, a little later on because Fox is really bad, but it is true that One America News and uh Newsmax are worse. I think it's objectively correct to say that, but that's not giving Fox a pass because this stuff is totally unacceptable. All right, we're going to talk to Nina Turner. Talk about Nina Turner, I should say. Nina Turner went on MSNBC and she handled a gotya question like a pro.
2: You called
6: voting for Joe Biden like eating a bowl of sugar honey iced tea, I'll say, but you know what I'm talking about. How will you work with this administration um, after being so vocally critical about them during the campaign? In that moment, Tiffany, you know, I was just thinking about the suffering of people. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I can, you know, I'm a hell raising humanitarian and. And sometimes I can can be a little brazen at times, but no one can question my integrity for standing up for the people. And in that moment, I was just thinking about the suffering of people, the lack of health care, and especially in a pandemic where we know we absolutely need to have universal health care in this country. You know, folks not having clean water, was those kinds of things that were swirling in my head and my mind at the time. But that does not mean disagreement, does not mean you can't work with someone. I want to give a very real example of the the vice president-elect. We all may recall during the debate, she really called out Vice President Biden's record of particularly saying, I was that girl. And she, But now she is the vice president-elect. So that's just one example of how you can have fierce disagreement with somebody, you can go hard with somebody or ham, as the young people say, and still be able to work with people. And I have a proven record of doing that. Tiffany, I declare today that I am willing and can, will and can work with anybody that is willing to stand up for
0: the least of these, the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class in this country.
1: That answer was splendid. Splendid? I just morphed into a British man from 1958. (laughs) That answer was superb. It was wonderful. It was glorious. She handled that very, very, very well. So, listen, the attempt there was a gotcha question, but she was able to do some Nina Turner jujitsu and sort of flip it right back on everybody else. So, I mean, this is some – if we're all being honest here, and that's what we do on this show – Yes, anybody who voted for Joe would admit, if they're honest, and if they have similar ideology, that he, it's a lesser evil. He's a lesser evil. That's why many people, young lefties, sucked it up and voted for him. Um, and if you go through the record, I don't, this isn't controversial. Voted for the Iraq War. Voted for the Patriot Act. Voted for the crime bill. Helped write it, in fact. Supported NAFTA. Supported the bankruptcy bill, which made it so that you can't file for bankruptcy on student loans. The list goes on and on. He has a lot of horrendous votes. He's a corporatist. That's what he is. So, yeah, there are going to be people who voted for Joe, and they say, basically, the only reason I did that is because I think Trump is worse and we can't afford another four years of Trump. Um, and that's an honest answer. And it's like, what more do people want? What more do you want? Do you want young lefties and lefties in general to be like, yeah, I voted for Joe and, like, pretend to be excited about it. Now you have to, like, attitude police them. It's just, it's so tedious and it's so silly. And Nina's point was like, yeah, you know what I was thinking of at the time? Like, all the people who are hurting who are not going to be helped by Joe and all the people who Joe hurt. So that's, that's what her answer was, and she's right. And then she does a masterful thing, which is she says, hey, look at what Kamala said to Joe during the debate. Kamala basically was like, you worked with segregationists and uh, that's pretty bigoted and that's not okay. Fair point. That was a fair point from Kamala Harris for sure. But then, yeah, she was picked for VP and now all of a sudden, it's she's never going to bring up those concerns again. Now it's Joe's wonderful and Joe's awesome because he picked me to be VP. It's no more like, no, I meant the thing I said when I said you work with segregationists and that's bigoted and unacceptable. So Nina's like, Yeah, she said things and then now she's working with Joe. So why can't I say things and work with Joe? But that gets to the most important point, which is, and this is why we trust Nina Turner, why we love Nina Turner, is that she's not going to work with anybody unless it's on her terms, on her terms. So, you know, if it's just to give an example, $15 minimum wage, Nina Turner's for that. Joe says he's for that. Let's see. Right. I hope he is. On that, she would work with him. On anything that makes sense, Nina Turner might, you know, say, hey, here's a list of people who are unfairly imprisoned because of our racist criminal drug war. Mr. President, can you please take a look at this and hopefully pardon or commute some of their sentences? That's something Nina Turner would work with Joe on, right? Like, she's going to work with anybody if the person is trying to do the right thing on a given issue. I wouldn't put it past, I mean, obviously, if Nina wins, she's in Congress and Holly's in the Senate, but I was going to say, I wouldn't put it past she would work with somebody like Holly, uh, just like Bernie just tried to do with the $1,200 checks. If she thinks it's substantively correct, she will work with people. If it's not, she will fight them. And so what we saw was, throughout the primary, Joe was perpetually wrong about a lot of stuff and taking a more corporatist position and a right wing position, and she was willing to call it out and say, you know what, I don't like that. That's not good. So she's principled, and she's a fighter. That's the thing I'm most excited about for Nina, because, look, all the Justice Democrats are with me 98, 99 percent of the time on actual policies. But not only do you need to be right on the policies, you need to have the right theory of change and strategy. And I think Nina Turner has a theory of change and a strategy that's more similar to mine, which is like, I don't care if the media hates me. I don't care if Pelosi hates me. My most powerful weapon is my voice, and I'm going to use it. And that's not the theory of change that the other Justice Democrats have. So anyway, we'll see what happens here with Nina Turner. Uh, but this is a wonderful answer. I think she's really politically talented, and I think she's politically talented without even having to try. It's just instinct. She knows where to go with this stuff, right? So um, can't wait to see more of, of Nina Turner. And by the way, I'm going to leave the fundraising link for Nina Turner in the video description box below. I don't often recommend people donate to politicians anymore, but I'm donating to Nina without a doubt for sure. She earned it. She deserves it. I trust her. She's a fighter. She agrees with me on the issues. I'm team Nina all day. So if you want to donate to Nina Turner, whatever it is, five bucks, ten bucks, 20 bucks, you want to go nuts, some more than that, She, I'm sure she only takes money from regular people, so link below. All right, guys, let me take a final break, and then when we come back, I got One American News Network. You're not going to want to miss this. Stay right there.
3: y'all, I'm back, and let's
1: bring this bad boy home, bring this bad boy home, okay, now we're going to talk about One American News Network, and Newsmax. And you're going to get a kick out of this. So I have some clips for you here. Uh, One of them is from One America News Network, and the other one is from Newsmax. There's a lot to say about this. This is both glorious and terrifying. Um, You'll see how truly out-of-this-world delusional these people are and these networks are. They're on Neptune. Take a look.
5: One
2: America News
5: will officially not be calling Joe Biden the president-elect. And aside from the Epoch Times, which isn't calling the election yet either, you won't hear that anywhere else. We are the only broadcast news network out there with the integrity to report that this election isn't over. Fox News caved to no one's surprise, but so did all the other so-called conservative media organizations, including Breitbart and even Newsmax. They've all called the race for Biden, but One American News won't. Until all the mountains of fraud are resolved, this race isn't over, and there must be no doubt that we have a president who won honestly, and not by stealing the voices of over 75 million Americans. For One American News, I'm Pearson Sharp, is going to be resolved, but I have a very strong conviction still that somehow, in some way, Donald Trump will ultimately prevail. Ultimately, he will. The more I look at these two, especially Joe, it seems very, very unnatural. There's something just wrong about this. But for now, they're going through the motions, okay? They're calling him president elect, even though he's not, even though according to the Constitution, he definitely is not. They're going through the motions, all right?
1: What's your end game, bro? What is your end game? Because presumably you can only play this game until Biden is sworn in. And then it's like, okay, well, we were wrong this entire time. Or, you know, when Biden is in year two of his administration, will you be like, President Trump is still the president? Like, what are you going to do? What's your end game? You haven't really thought this through much, have you? This is very, like, id driven. It's really just sad at this point. It really is. So, um, one American news network was bragging. We won't even call Biden president-elect, bro. We won't even do that. And then homeboy, whose name is Pearson Sharp, by the way, which almost sounds like a fake conservative news name, right? I'm Pearson Sharp. Um, He says, we're the only network with the integrity to report that this election isn't over. Integrity, he framed it as. No, it's not integrity. It's stupidity. We're the only network stupid enough to continue to lie to our audience and say, the election isn't over. When it was certified by the Electoral College, son, www.getoverit.net. Dunzo, over. Forget it. Fox News caved. Even Breitbart and Newsmax caved. Um, And I also love how they both have that super fake announcer voice. Which really does lead me to believe, even though this is a small thing, it leads me to believe that they know they're full of shit. They're just playing a role. And they're playing the role, in, in this case, for profit. Because there's a lane now that Fox doesn't occupy of the furthest right network, and they're all competing for that. Um, Greg Kelly, another name that seems like a fake conservative news name, I'm Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly, two first name have an ass, says, I have a strong conviction Trump will still prevail. If Biden's not president-elect, he's not, even according to the Constitution. What on earth are you babbling about, son? What on earth are you babbling about? And again, my original point, I don't know what your end game is. Biden's going to be sworn in, he's president, it's over, it's done. There's even been giant hints dropped from Trump that, like, yeah, of course, it is what it is. These guys are still hanging on. They're still hanging on terrifying thought when it comes to these networks is creating a network to the right of Fox, they're not ideological at all. They're not ideological. There's no underlying philosophy or worldview. It's just Fox isn't sufficiently sycophantic to Trump so now we're going to pop up and be sufficiently sycophantic to him, even to the point where we just flat out lie about the nature of reality and say things as absurd as Biden's not president elect. And again, compare that with whenever people say we want to network to the left of MSNBC. What does that mean? People want to network to the left of MSNBC. They want one that's more focused on the policy issues, that actually has a coherent worldview and philosophy and ideology. It means I want a network that's going to hold the Democrats accountable as much as they hold the Republicans accountable and actually fight for left-wing values. So it's more ideological. So what does that tell you? That tells you that when the further right you go, the more authoritarian you get as a general rule. Because that's what these networks are. They're just authoritarian. Who's my dear daddy leader? And it's Trump. And so let's just defend him at all costs, even if I'm denying empirical reality it's really sad. And then how many people are watching this stuff and getting brainwashed? There was one show where Newsmax, was it Newsmax One American News Network? I think it was Newsmax, beat um, Fox News in the key demo. Now thankfully, it's crazy I'm saying thankfully, because Fox is horrendous too, but at least they acknowledge that Biden's president elect, they're still gonna have a lead overall. But yeah, this is where Trump can step in when he leaves office and just start his own conservative network, start Trump TV or basically buy One American News Network, buy Newsmax, kind of merge them and have Trump TV. I mean, that, you know, that would be a good business move on his part, but Trump's not exactly known for good business moves, even though he's created the aura that he's good at that stuff. Um, just insane propaganda. So over the top, so gross, so in your face, with the fake announcer voice and everything. It's hard for me to believe that some people watch this stuff and they're like, <laughs> They're the only ones telling me the truth, bro. (laughs) Really? At this late date where the Electoral College already certified Biden's win, you're still doing this? Over 50 court cases and almost every single one but one got thrown out. And you're still thinking, no, man, he really won, bro. And watch. I told you guys, um, it was an amazing story. But for all these betting sites, after Trump already lost, 10% of the bets were going that Trump was going to eventually win. Ten percent? That's a lot, man. And that ten percent is cl- clearly watching One America News Network and Newsmax. Okay. All right. Barack Obama. Barack Obama went on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and to my surprise, Noah actually asked a really good question here, and Obama's answer, I think, is revealing.
4: I sometimes wondered if you ever grappled with the difficulty of the paradox that America was creating in what it was trying to do in the world. And then what its actions were sometimes creating in the world you know i i I mean i think about that in the middle east you know wars that have been started under false pretenses people who have been killed who had nothing to do you know and so i wonder as someone who had to make decisions and someone who was in that leadership position do you sometimes grapple with how america did or did not help itself in in how it acted with the world because in the world like i'll tell you as an international person we would oftentimes go like man yes america is great and it's doing wonderful things But then you'd be like, but also, man, sometimes they just
2: break the rules and uh, no one can say anything about it. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And I I record examples in the book of of where I'm grappling with this, right? And one of the interesting challenges of being president of the United States, but I think being head of government or or state uh, in any country, is uh, you inherit a legacy, right? So if I come in as president and – Uh, I I can't undo the Iraq war, the decision to go into Iraq. Now, I I, I can manage as best I can how we can wind down that war, mitigate some of the damage that's been done, but I can't reverse it.
1: He's doing what's called passing the buck. Me? Me? I'm, I'm... What am I going to do? I mean, I, I did what I could do. I couldn't undo the things that happened before me, but I, I did what I could do. Now, I've actually referred to Obama's ideology previously as a status quo manager. So in other words, he looks at the world as it is, and he, what he does is tweaks around the edges. Little tweak over here, little tweak over here, but the status quo is, you know, this giant force of history, this tsunami of history that you can't just radically alter. And again, status quo manager, that's probably the best description for it. And I really think that's a failure of vision. It's a failure of ideology too, but it's a failure of vision. It's a failure to understand that better things are possible, radically better things are possible. You know, it's really... It's the Bill Clinton mindset as opposed to the FDR mindset. The FDR mindset is, hey, we have a Great Depression. How about I do everything in my power to change this? How about we do the New Deal? How about we dig this country out of the hole that it's in? And um, what happens when you do that? Well, you win four times. And you crush your opponents. And everybody loves you. Um, Obama's just a, a... Corporate status quo manager that 's what he is, uh, and I actually philosophically i don't even agree with what he's saying because like nobody was blaming him for what Bush did at all you You went in and you got the benefit of the doubt from day one of now you get to make decisions and you're responsible for what you do you're responsible for your policies you're not responsible for what they did um. You're responsible for the fact that you didn't prosecute them when you could have because they're war criminals. But even if you didn't prosecute them, but you drastically changed all their policies, I still think people would have been like, you know what? Fair enough. We'll take it. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. We stayed in the wars. We stayed in the wars when he ran on at least ending the Iraq war. He drew down at one point, but then he sent troops right back in. He expanded the drone program. He expanded, you know, the Patriot Act, NSA spying capabilities, war on whistleblowers, bailed out Wall Street, did a Republican health care reform. I mean, the list goes on and on. So his way of dealing with this stuff is he looks at what's happening. He says, this is the status quo. And now let me tweak it. Let me manage the status quo. But it really is quite an admission, isn't it? That he's like, well, I mean, what was I going to do? The person before me did what he did, and so I had to manage that. One of the ways you could have managed that is to radically break from it. We're going to pull out of Iraq within the first month. We're going to pull out of Afghanistan within the first month. We're not going to do a drone war. We're going to dismantle the NSA spying, the illegal, unconstitutional NSA spying capabilities. I mean, this is what you do if you actually, you know... Are ideologically motivated in a social democratic direction and in a non-interventionist direction. And Trevor, Noah, Trevor Noah's point is actually correct. He says there's a difference between what America thinks it does versus what it actually does. And you know they say, oh, we're all about the rules, but then they brazenly break the rules. And he's talking to a person who's responsible for assassinating an American citizen with a drone, a 16-year-old American citizen, no trial, no due process, no nothing. So listen, fact of the matter is ideologically he believed in the empire he was he accepted the empire with the way he chose to govern he accepted the premise that we're the empire and we did what we did already and so now let me manage it and that really is a more bill clinton approach to politics it's a it's a failure of vision and leadership and i think he views it as being ultimately pragmatic but i mean listen if the person before you comes in, if there's a test and the person before you got a 12 out of 100, right? And you say, "Hey, I had to deal with what I had to deal with, so I improved it. I got a 17 out of 100." It's like, why didn't you aim for like a 95 or 100 out of 100? Not even a passing grade. Not even a 65, 70. Not even that. And that—that's really what it feels like. It feels like, hey, the damage was done. All I can do was manage and, and, and mitigate the downsides of it. And so I did what I could do. And it's like, no, you didn't, you didn't shoot for the stars, which then in turn made you reach the moon. You shot for the ceiling and didn't even reach that. I'll give him credit when he does stuff right. The Iran deal was correct. The, you know, getting on a better footing with Cuba was correct. There's things he did that were correct. Freeing nonviolent drug offenders in the second term, a lot of pardons and commutations that's all good I'll give him credit where it's due but ultimately he's a corporatist status quo manager interventionist it is what it is and this answer I think is very telling it's very revealing because he doesn't even think he's saying anything wrong here he thinks it's just incredibly pragmatic like yeah everything was really shitty and I came in and said how can I make it ever so slightly less shitty and that's what I did whoa congratulations So this is incredible. Even after the Electoral College met and the election results are certified, Trump is still playing this game. This game as if like, "Hey, maybe I actually did win. Watch this."
3: President Trump A vaccine at warp speed. America rewarded President Trump with over 74 million votes. Millions more than Obama and both Clintons. More votes than any president. More votes from African Americans, Latinos, and Jewish Americans than any Republican in decades. President Trump won Ohio, Florida, and 95% of Bellwether counties, suggesting a landslide Trump victory. But something happened. Some states rushed out mail-in ballots, a recipe for fraud. Dead people voted. Ballots miraculously appeared. Biden ballots added in the middle of the night. Joe Biden bragged about having the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history. It's an outrage. The American people deserve to know the truth. Demand an honest election and an honest count. Contact your legislators today.
1: It's incredible. The election result, results have been certified. The election is over. Biden is president-elect, and he will be sworn in as president. And he's running ads like that. That's almost like a, it's almost like a campaign ad, right? Isn't that what it, it strikes you as? And they love taking these misleading data points and using them. Saying like, oh, usually if somebody wins Florida and Ohio, they win the whole election. Okay, but that didn't happen. So, I guess not all the time, because Biden won Arizona, for example. Democrats weren't winning Arizona previously. Biden won Arizona. Biden won Georgia. Democrats weren't winning Georgia. Biden won Georgia. So, you bring up this, like, misleading data point. Well, I won Ohio and Florida. Congratulations. Biden has 306 electoral college votes. How do you like them apples? He's got 74 million votes, more than any sitting president ever. Okay. And you still lost by about 7 million votes. It like he brings up these things and it's not they're like misleading on purpose they, it doesn't give you the whole picture they're just trying to imply like biden did well in the exact places where he needed to do really well fraudulent or that's where they put all of their energy and their focus and their ad money like or that right it, and by the way this is what trump did in 2016 he targeted the rust belt effectively and that's how he won and so biden knew the places where they were targeting, and he won those places. Like, it's re- listen, it's really not that fishy. It's not. I'm sorry. Biden was up in, like, every single poll. He ended up winning by 7 million votes, about 4% or so. If anything, that's a little bit of an underperformance because he was le- leading by 7 or 8 percentage points. So he won by 4. Okay, Trump gets credit for his little surge, his little, you know, surge coming into Election Day, but it still wasn't enough to win. And by the way, not even really that close. Biden has 306 electoral votes. The point that people need to understand if they're hardcore Trump people is, it's not like you weren't given your day in court. Not only were you given your day in court, in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, these are conservative courts. When a 6-3 conservative court throws out your Texas lawsuit, for example, and laughs at you, that says something. Because when you actually get into a court of law and you have to prove your case, your weird misleading data points don't apply anymore. That's not sufficient. That's not going to win the day for you. So then that leads to the question, well, what the hell is Trump doing? On top of saving face, which he thinks this is saving face, even though it's even more embarrassing, this, all this stuff that you're seeing is tied to his continued fundraising effort. He was doing this when he already knew that he lost from the beginning. He was raising money to say, we're going to fight this thing. But if you read the, the fine print, they were basically saying, like, no, this money is really going to more go towards paying down campaign debt campaign debt and i don't know maybe even personal debt i don't know could be i think it said campaign debt but it could have been either one i don't know but he's fundraising like oh we're gonna fight this and you need to fund the effort to fight it and it's like you're actually taking that money and putting it paying down your own debt so it's misleading he might run in 2024 man jesus the show never ends and it's driving me crazy Vice News did a segment here talking about the issue of whether or not Trump has the ability to pardon himself.
2: The story of President Trump's final weeks in office actually starts right here, at the Watergate Hotel in the summer of 1972, with a bungled break-in at Democratic Party headquarters. The scandal that followed was wild enough to make Richard Nixon both the first American president to resign in disgrace, and the first to rely on his successor, Gerald Ford, to protect him from criminal charges with a presidential pardon.
3: It is common knowledge that serious allegations and accusations hang like a sword over our former president's head.
2: Well, Trump's potential legal exposure is probably worse than Nixon's ever was. Obstruction of justice, bribery, campaign finance violations, all at least theoretically possible. And Trump knows it. The investigations never stopped. They went on for four years. The thing is, scoring a presidential pardon isn't quite as easy as Nixon made it look. Trump's basically got three ways to grab that golden ticket. And each of them has problems. First, the full Trump. It's the simplest. The president can just pardon himself. It doesn't matter that he hasn't been charged with a crime. The president's pardon power extends even to future charges that haven't been filed yet. Trump says he has the power to do it, but constitutional experts aren't so sure. Neither is his own lawyer.
5: Do you and the president's attorneys believe the president has the power to pardon himself?
2: He's not, but he probably does. Back in 1974, Nixon's Department of Justice said, nope, that probably wouldn't stand up in court, on the basic principle that no one can be a judge in their own case. Which brings us, option two. Full Nixon. Trump could copy Nixon's style, resign before his term ends, and then let President Mike Pence do the deed. That would stand up in court. But it runs into another colossal problem. Trump's ego. Trump's already obsessed with pretending the 2020 election was somehow stolen from him. If he steps down early, he'd have to go around explaining why he didn't even finish the one term he had. And that brings us to option three, the switcheroo. Back in 1974, when the DOJ was looking into a potential Nixon pardon, one lawyer suggested a sneaky way he could do it without fully resigning, the 25th Amendment. It's supposed to let an incapacitated president step down briefly so the vice president can do the job. So Trump could invoke the 25th Amendment, stop being president for, like, ten minutes, get Pence to sign his pardon and then snap back into the presidency. Switcheroo. But here's the thing. It's totally skeevy. Would Pence do it? Pence has mastered the art of beaming loyally at Trump while standing far enough away to avoid getting splashed with the worst of Trump's mud. But those approving eyes are also fixed on his own future run for the presidency. The switcheroo would probably work for Trump. But let's be honest. It doesn't scream, I'm Mike Pence, and I have integrity. The future campaign ads would write themselves. And none of Trump's options offered what he himself might call total exoneration. First of all, pardoning himself or his kids implies they did something wrong in the first place.
3: Typically, if someone is being given a pardon that suggests they may have committed a crime, that's not something I would want to have associated with my family.
1: Even the fact that we're having this conversation is absolutely insane, because I would submit to you that if we're really talking about a president being able to pardon himself, then that would be you're more than just a president at that point. You're like an emperor or a dictator or a king, you know, like, okay, you can you can quite literally plan to commit a federal crime and then just pardon yourself and be like, yeah, I have this ability. Yeah. So then rules literally don't apply to you. And that kind of flies in the face of the whole notion of a civilized society where we're supposed to have justice be blind, everybody's equal in the eyes of the law. So, I mean, listen, I would hope that any court would slap down a self-pardon, even if you try to use the loopholes like they're discussing there. But ultimately, listen, it might be a moot point. It might be a moot point because... Again, the cases that have the best chance of working against Trump are coming out of New York. So they're state crimes. And so the president doesn't have the authority or the ability to pardon on state crimes, even in theory. So there's no argument that a president could pardon based on uh, pardon state crimes, only federal crimes. So if he were to go down, that's how he'd go down anyway, and there's no recourse. So really this whole conversation might be moot because they're talking more about federal crimes. And if, if he's, they get him on anything, it would be state crimes, not federal crimes. But it really is crazy that we're having this conversation because that is some real, like, ruthless, criminal, gangster, thug shit. Even to think about, talk about pardoning yourself and your family and those closest to you, that really takes – I would feel comfortable taking us out of the, the category of, like, constitutional republic and representative democracy, if we do something like that, because that really is sort of codifying a, a strain of authoritarianism that perhaps needs a new name. Okay, final, no, oh, is this the final? No, I think I have two more. Oh, no, nope, this is the final story of the day, my bad. Um, all right, story on tax cuts, baby, story on tax So we have a new study from the University of No Shit that just dropped. Uh, Actually, this is in Bloomberg. The title is 50 Years of Tax Cuts for the Rich Didn't Trickle Down, Study Says. So here's what they say. Tax cuts for rich people breed inequality without providing much of a boon to anyone else, according to a study of the advanced world that could add to the case for the wealthy to bear more of the cost of the coronavirus pandemic. The paper by David Hope of the London School of Economics and Julian Limburg of King's College, London, found that such measures over the last 50 years only really benefited the individuals who were directly affected and did little to promote jobs or growth. Policymakers shouldn't worry that raising taxes on the rich to fund the financial costs of the pandemic will harm their economies, Hope said in an interview. That will, that will be comforting news to U.K. Chancellor of the – how the hell do you say that Extre, – Extrequer Rishi Sunak? whose hopes of repairing the country's virus-battered public finances may rest on his ability to increase taxes, possibly on capital gains, a levy that might disproportionately impact higher-earning individuals. So, I was jokingly saying this is from the University of No Shit, because, of course, of course, the idea that, well, if you cut taxes for the wealthy, it trickles down everybody else. This is trickle-down economics. This is Reaganomics. This has been tried in the United States repeatedly. Actually, it didn't start with Reagan. There was, you know, in in the 19 teens, you had a similar economic philosophy in place, and you had the Roaring Twenties, and then the stock market crash and the Great Depression. So, you know, it, it wasn't. It's not actually just from Reagan, but they did sort of come up with the intellectual framework to describe it around that time. Art Laffer and others, and. Um, Yeah, the idea is, oh, my God, if you cut taxes for the wealthy, then all the benefits trickle down and everybody else uh, is happier as well. They say a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's not true. It's simply not true. It doesn't trickle down. It turns out when you give wealthy people more money, they hoard that money. They hoard that wealth. That's what they do. And uh, if anything, you have a, a, a giant increase in inequality, wealth inequality, income inequality, and it's just, they tr- it's trying to put an intellectual veneer over what they're really doing, which is just giving wealthy people all the money. You know, like the real goal, I think, is to have wealthy elites get more money, which means in turn they get more power and political power. Because money equals political power as well, because you can donate to the politicians or the, to the campaign. So that's the real goal. And then they just pretended like, no, it's good to give me all the money because eventually it gets to you. Because i hire more people, I'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Next thing you know, everybody's happy. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. And, you know, there's so many downsides to it as well. It, it does perpetuate boom-bust cycles, which is something I just touched on. Um, also, it, uh, nobody brings up this point, but it usually explodes the debt and the deficit. Now, that's not bad in and of itself, but it is bad because you're exploding the debt and the deficit just to give the wealthy more money. You know, if you're going to do deficit spending, it should nominally be for things that help the entire population, like, I don't know, health care, education, stimulus, whatever it might be, not to give a giant tax cut to corporations and the wealthiest people. And so we saw this with George W. Bush. We saw this with Ronald Reagan. We saw this with the 2017 Trump and Republican tax cuts where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. It's not true that it helps regular people. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. It helps the wealthy, and the rest of what they say is a lie, and studies prove it. All right, guys, I'm done here, baby. I love you, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.